Welcome to the Jack Mountain Bushcraft Podcast, episode 28. Welcome to the Jack Mountain Bushcraft Podcast with your host, Jack Mountain Bushcraft School founder and master main guide, Tim Smith. I'm your host, Tim Smith. I'm a registered master main guide, and in 1999, I founded the Jack Mountain Bushcraft School. We help people become more skilled, more knowledgeable, more experienced, and more confident outdoors by using traditional skills, a few simple tools, and field-based experience. Whether you're looking to go from city slicker to competent outdoor professional, want to experience a remote expedition, or just want to learn a few new outdoor skills, we've got you covered. You can check out the show notes to this and all of our podcasts at blog.jackmtn.com. When you're there, click on the podcast button. And if you enjoy the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Lastly, the best way to keep up with our programs and trips is to join our email newsletter. And you can do that at jmbnews.com. Hello, folks. Welcome back to the Jack Mountain Bushcraft Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Smith. And seated here today with my two good friends, uh, Christopher Russell and Ed Butler. You may remember these two. Christopher's been on a bunch of podcasts, and Ed was on episode 26 just before he went to take his registered main guide exam. And how did that turn out, Ed? Uh, turned out uh, very good, actually. Uh, it ended up being a very um, a positive, really positive experience. Did and, you pass or not? Well, yeah, that's a part <laughs> I don't want to talk about. No, actually, uh, yeah, no, I passed first time. Um, it was. Uh, uh, it was, it was interesting. It was, uh, I don't want to talk too much about it because the only way to get the certification is to go take the test and see what I'm talking about. But, um, it was, uh, very in-depth and, uh, happy to say that I am now a registered main guide. So we are three registered main guides sitting in a kitchen in right near the main border in New Hampshire this morning on a rainy day and, uh, doing what, you know, if you put a few main guides together, we're doing that. We're sitting around drinking coffee, talking about how smart we are. And we don't, and how little we know about football. <laughs> how little we know about what? Football. What? Not soccer, but NFL football. Oh, Amer- American football. American so not football. the round ball. <laughs> no. What, I get mixed up there, too, because if you go in different parts of the world, a football is something you kick with your foot. I always thought it was a ball made out of the skin of human feet. That's not... No. I want to play that sport. <laughs> Which is weird because it's made out of pigskin. Right. Right? Is that football? Anyway. You can see you can see where this is going. Yeah. This is... Uh, I didn't show up here until late in the game this morning, but apparently these two were up before five and have been drinking coffee steadily for about four hours now. So <clears throat> That about sums it up. <laughs> yeah. Any, my, my hand is shaking so fast it could probably find a God particle in there right now. <laughs> Interesting. You're like that collider. I am. I am the Large Hadron Collider right now, and I'm totally fueled by caffeine. Nice. Uh, that could be your new nickname. Kaleidoscope. Please no. <laughs> so today we are sitting here, and it's kind of rainy out. End of November. We're recording this the day before Thanksgiving. Um, so we're transitioning into winter now here in northern New England. So we want to spend some time today talking about winter gear and about getting ready for winter, right? We run uh, a pretty robust uh, selection of winter programs from 
from sleeping out in snow caves and things to two-week unsupported expeditions where we're hauling all of our gear. And the, you know, something that, that should be said and, and should be internalized is that the more extreme the weather conditions, and by that I usually mean cold and snow and things, then the more exacting are the requirements for the gear that people use uh, in those environments. So I always get a kick out of it. Probably every year there's some news story that comes around in August about there was some hiker lost in the mountains and they survived for you know four days and they always they always have these ridiculous headlines like hikers survived for four days by drinking stream water and you know it's August it doesn't get below 60 degrees you're not going to expire from hypothermia so it's all just sort of a a scam if you will to get readers right mm. you know because people love those true survival stories but if it's not cold you know if you could just lay there you're not going to freeze to death in an hour it's not really a survival thing you know from the perspective of what the media is trying to make it out to be you know they just got lost and they had to wait it out till they got found that happens to me once a week <laughs> yeah. in inside like get lost on the way to the i'm bathroom. amazed i found my way to this kitchen yeah so again, like summertime, someone gets lost. You know, who cares what they're wearing? It really doesn't matter unless it's a pretty extreme situation like they're on top of Mount Washington in a 100-mile-an-hour wind or something or just wearing all cotton standing in the wind and getting hypothermic that way. But for the most part, it doesn't happen, right? It's not a big deal. But the flip side of that is in the winter, you know, death can come in a matter of minutes, not hours. Say if somebody, if it's really cold and breezy and somebody busts through the ice and gets good and soaked, and they're standing out on the frozen lake, like you're going to lose the fine motor control, the ability to light a match or strike a lighter or something in a matter of minutes, maybe less than a minute in bitter cold. Like, yeah, last year we were out and the final day of one of our trips, I could lean into the wind. It was so windy. We were out on a big lake. It was so windy. I could lean into it and it would still push me back. So without like very specific gear, there you're going to lose you're going to freeze digits you're going to freeze faces you know all those things that that you don't want to you don't want to happen right and the thing that allows us to to be out and be active in in the environment when the weather's so crazy like that is very specific requirements so you know gone are the days when we allow people to show up with grandpa's mickey mouse sleeping bag from the 1950s and oh it's my winter bag you know, that stuff just doesn't work or goofy footwear without removable liners uh, to dry out. So today we're just going to talk a little bit about some of the stuff that you should be thinking about if you're going to go out, whether with us recreating in extreme environments or on your own or with somebody else, but just some general, general guidelines. So probably one of the biggest big picture items here is there's a huge uh, continuum of stuff and maybe on one end is ultra light and ultra high tech. And I would say ultra short lived. And on the other end of the spectrum are things that are durable and will last a long time. Right. And, you know, everybody wants something that's super ultra light. That's also going to last and is durable. And yeah. And I want a pet unicorn and neither one exist. Well, um, you know, I... <laughs> <laughs> what, what about unobtainium, Tim? <laughs> yeah, the unobtainium stove. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's a hard thing for people to get through their heads. Right. But on the one end of the spectrum, you've got like the latest, greatest ultralight, whatever made out of unobtainium. And on the other end, you've got, 
something that weighs 30 pounds and is made out of wool or metal or something, right? But it works. Yeah, but it works. Yeah. So usually that's what we have to choose between if we're outdoor enthusiasts, right? We either get something that's ultralight and high tech that's going to last a couple of trips or we get something that's kind of low tech and more traditional and it's going to last year after year mm-hmm. after year. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, if you've listened to this podcast for any length of time um, or read any of our blog posts, you can, I think you probably have a good handle on which end of that spectrum I tend to favor. Like I'd rather pay a little bit extra money and work a little harder to lug the thing around and have it perform year after year after year than, you know, have it be the uh, lightest whatever do all end all and have it be you know in the mm-hmm. trash heap in uh after a trip or two but thoughts on that yeah i well because before i started coming to jack mountain and doing stuff there i did a i did ultralight hiking i did half the at and that was very uh yeah it was very weight dependent on what i could bring and stuff and so that was kind of my mindset even through the whole first semester i was on that was kind of where i was at and then about halfway through it started to see the advantages of uh stuff that stuff that works stuff that's heavy and that yeah it's a pain in the butt to drag around but um i'm definitely starting to come around to the uh i'd rather do more work line of thinking than wanting to just not carry anything yeah well i mean um you know not to mention not to mention we uh talk we were talking a little bit earlier about how the uh there's, there's a price to pay other than retail when it comes to ultralight materials because usually ultralight materials involve a certain have a certain carbon footprint mm. um, because most of them are petroleum based and so on and so forth so it's kind of ironic that um, you know a, a, a lot of folks who are into the ultralight uh, ultra scene um, tend to uh, uh, be more um, earth they come across as earth friendly whereas like ultralight and you know anything made of carbons and byproducts of petroleum isn't necessarily friendly to the earth did i say that yeah yeah no that's absolutely i read the it was a big article last summer i think i read where they were talking about all the fish that you catch now have plastic in their guts yeah and basically it's from people wearing fleece and then laundering the fleece and then that water makes its way into the watershed yeah and then the fish eat it well (laughs) so like the the idea of like fleece i mean there was some old ad and it was, you know, some recreator patting a sheep and, you know, the, the caption was, you can keep your coat this year because I'm wearing fleece. Yep. And which it just made me want to throw up on the spot and, you know. Well, it, I just think that, you know, it used to be like, um, it, it, it's an old adage like we're never done making mistakes. And I think a lot of the things we're doing now down the road are going to be looked back. It's like, well, that really wasn't the smartest thing to you know like some of the products we use some of the way we made products really wasn't the best mm-hmm. it seemed like a good idea at the time like they used to give you cigarettes and and, and military rations all right that's not a good idea but we're they, still we're cigars still, would be better or what they uh, would have been because you wouldn't have carried as many with you right yeah uh <laughs> in that respect oh. but, you know, you think about it now, it's like, well, it seemed like a good idea at the time. Whereas, like, you know, a lot of the products that we're making and using this day and age, I think, not I think this, many people think this, that down the road, maybe that wasn't such a good, good idea at the time. Although it was marketable. And it was easier. It I was think easier. that's what it always comes to is that it's easier. Like, yeah. people are focused around, like, what's easiest, you know, we're talking about how light stuff is to carry. Like, that's easier to do. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the sacrifice that you're making maybe isn't one that well, is obvious to you in your lifetime. It's going to yeah. be something that affects people 
further down the line. And don't you don't forget always it's like and I've said it's like the wilderness is the objective, the style is the obsession. So whether your style is traditional, Ooh, that's, I like that. I never yeah. heard that. You never heard that? No, I don't get out much though. Oh well, I think I might have just said it. <laughs> but, like, uh, well, I've heard it once now. <laughs> yeah. so you're going to hear it again. But you think about it. There are people who want to emulate the uh, the old traditional ways, and you know the social media is full of those folks. And you know, with the the old ash pack baskets and the wool shirts and the Filson and this and that, which is great because they're great products and they work. But there are also people who want to do the modern, more you know, light, go light, go go further, go farther, go light, so to speak. Um, yeah. And I, I, you know, I where is where does it, there's really. Where does, you know, where's, where do you draw the line? I don't know. We've had this discussion in every course that we've run for 20 years. And sort of the line in the sand is the idea of minimum versus displaced impact. That most of the gear available for outdoor recreation now comes from the mountaineering and ultralight backpacking mm -hmm. camp, mm -hmm. right? Uh, well, and that is, and then and there's nothing wrong with that. But the point is that you know, people will poo-poo me when I light a fire to cook to make a pot of coffee or something, mm -hmm. a little yep. twig fire, which is totally sustainable on the land where I'm where I'm doing it, um, and pull out a stove that burns petroleum to, in order to do the same thing. And I will say, and they'll say, this is more of a minimum impact. And I will say, no, it's not. It's a displaced impact, meaning there's a huge impact for mining that petroleum and maybe the rare earth metals in order to make the stove and all those things. But that impact just isn't felt where the recreating is taking place. And I'm not advocating, hey, let's go up into the high alpine country around the summit of Mount Washington and rip apart, you know, 300-year-old baby spruce trees to, to light a fire to make a cup of coffee. No, there's, a, there's an appropriate place and time for, for both, right? Mm -hmm. but, but we've been painting with such broad brush strokes and everybody says stoves are better for the environment. And I'll say, no, they're not. Well, they're just not. I think the the way of, to think about that is uh, it may be like if I bring a, an isopropane stove up to the top of Mount Washington and cook my meal and, you know, take out all my plastic bags with me and this and that, it's better for the environment immediately around me. Correct. But what about over in Malaysia where they're making these products and or let's say Malaysia, somewhere else in the world where they're throwing their byproducts over a cliff. Exactly. Or, you know, somewhere in the world there's a, there's, there's uh there's a reaction to what, you know, what you're doing, you know, uh, not a reaction, but um, an, effect. an effect, cause and effect. So, yeah. yeah, okay, I can go up, you know, I can go up in the White Mountains and, and, and have a cookout with, with lightweight gear, and, and it's not going to have any effect on, on that area. Right. But the, you know, what it took to get those products put together and into, you know, into, under the shelf at the store where I bought them is, can be catastrophic. Well, right. See, I've come to the point now where I've just I've accepted that nothing I do is going to be right. So I just carry around old tires and light those on fire to cook all my meals. And you can roll them right to the top exactly. of the mountain. Exactly. And they sometimes <laughs> if they're big enough, I get inside well, them and go back more, down. More more importantly, they burn wet. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Our wet weather fire exercises are never going to be the same after this so, conversation. So you're going to see skitter tires in a canoe. <laughs> that's our fire. That's how we're cooking our fire. To, if food we have light them on fire in the canoe. Yeah. Hey. Right. No holds barred anymore. Right. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, minimum versus displaced Might have got impact. off track on that one. Yeah, yeah a little bit. Just a little bit. Just, <laughs> just a little, a little bit. bit. So, there's something to consider. I mean, to, to, to kind of sew it up a little bit is it, it's not saying that, people, you know, going light is, is, is causing environmental havoc, but it's something you really need to consider 
when you you know when you're doing anything is to um, you know th think about what what it took to get get that product to you well, and, and the life cycle of the product you there know you go exactly where yeah. it where it comes from raw yeah. materials how it's made how they ship it to you so what are you doing with that empty can of propane when you're done with it where's mm -hmm. it going well you you guys you kind of hit on an interesting point um, talking about uh, you were talking about the the different effects based on where you are and like your different approaches to stuff like you know if you're in high alpine obviously you're not going to cut down a tree but if we're on like the field school where it's sustainable and stuff we like that fire to start uh start our fire for a cup of coffee and that that kind of is a good indicator for a lot of what i think about gear is that it's not about it's never about the gear or the product name or anything like that it's about your knowledge of how that gear works and the knowledge of how that gear works in the setting you're in um you know we talk a lot about tingly boots and they're pretty cheap compared to a lot of the other boots that are out there to be bought uh, but they work not because um tingly boots are specifically designed for winter but because we understand what other things to use with them to make that an effective thing for walking around in the snow and i think that that's something that is sort of taken for granted a lot um people that want to go outdoors think that they can buy this kit that once they've got it that's all they ever need to go outdoors but there's no there's no knowledge or skill set behind that to do it it's just uh mm -hmm. you want to be babysat the whole time in my mind rather than having any understanding yeah, it's pretty easy to pick up a copy of Backpacker magazine and see what's the newest, latest thing. And mine just came know. in; I haven't read it yet. Thank God for Amazon Prime. You know, anywhere <laughs> in the world, two days. Asterix. This <laughs> this podcast not endorsed by Amazon Prime. Oh, my bad. Every year, <laughs> I have to throw out all of my older kit because it's not like trendy and fashionable <laughs> and with the current year stuff. Which is like, yeah, it's expensive, you know. I've been doing this for 20 years, and yeah. every year I have to start from scratch because, oh, that color's wrong. Well, but it says a lot about you, Tim, <laughs> as, as a trendsetter in the fashion world, that no matter all that gear that you threw out, your expedition trousers still lasted as long as they did, and they were fashionable every year. And trends come around every 20 years. Yeah, exactly. So you're, you're on the upswing now, bud. <laughs> anyway. So... Uh, yeah, let's, let's rein this thing in and, yes, and please. give like, people some, yes, please. something useful to, to walk away with. I want to just talk about specific pieces of, of gear and, you know, what people need to bring when they come on like a winter trip with us, or if, if you're ever out in, in bitter cold weather for any extended length of time, you know, what, what works. Um, so we tend to prioritize, uh, function over fashion. And like we said in the beginning, I'm happier with things that are heavier that are going to last longer than with the more ultralight stuff that's going to last um, a shorter length, have a shorter lifespan. Uh, so in general with clothing, you know, wool works really well in bitter cold weather. The downside to wool is that it's heavy and it's horrible to try to pack. So, you know, my sort of uh, method for dressing in the bitter cold is I like to wear layers of wool. So usually when we're walking out, say from the trailhead, I'm going to have as much of my wool clothing on my body as I can because there it's much easier for me to carry the weight and to pack it as I'm wearing it than it is to stuff it into a bag and drag it on a sled. So for example, um, I've got this super cool vest um, that I got a couple years ago. I think it was L.L. Beans. But anyway, it's... Uh, is Dan Marino wool? I don't know if you I've guys heard are... about that, but I don't know a lot. Please tell me more. Well, Dan Marino was a nine-time Pro Bowl NFL quarterback for a team called the Miami Dolphins. 
And in addition to, I guess, being really good at playing football, he um, developed this type of wool called Dan Marino wool. Wow, I didn't know that. And it's a special type of wool from a special type of sheep, I think. And it doesn't itch like other wools do. And I think you can launder it, but I never do. Well, if there's anywhere that knows where to like deal with cold weather, it's... Florida. Miami, Miami Dolphins. absolutely. I mean, they deal with some... How brutal cold. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And what's a little controversy, because Dan Marino also endorsed Isotona gloves. Yeah. If you remember right. Oh, no. I, I remember. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Isotona. Yeah. That was Dan Marino. He gave them to all his receivers. Yeah, what, no, I don't make this stuff the, up. What's controversial about that? Isotona isn't Marino wool. It's not Marino wool. No. No. He was playing both sides. So, we... Man... <sighs> It's like the conspiracies are just flowing out. Oh, right yeah. Now. No. So, I mean, this is a whole... We could delve into this and go take it, you know, <laughs> anywhere you want to go. But So, Dan Marino wool is, is usually really high quality wool. Sometimes they don't even have... Uh, they just call it well, Merino wool. Well, as a matter of fact, I, I have Merino wool base layers, and it's probably the best base layer I've ever owned. It's not cheap. No. No. But, but, but it's got Dan Marino's signature. Yeah. Somewhere yeah, it does somewhere, <laughs> but uh, it's uh, it's made by another. I don't want to. Um, no, I I don't think this is Dan Marino wool, but it's Merino wool, and it it is probably what the best. Do you, I don't get it. What do you mean? <laughs> the uh, is, well, there's other Merinos besides Dan Marino. Yeah. Hi, <laughs> <laughs> mind blown, mind blown. You know what bothers me is I really don't know what Merino is. <laughs> Where did that word come from? It was a I'm just going to fess up. I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> like we talked about, it came from nine-time Pro Bowler right. Dan Marino. Well, I guess... To and get... he developed a certain type of sheep way back in, I think, the 1500s in Spain or Portugal. And then uh, before his NFL career. Um, Are you saying Dan Marino's immortal? No. Well, I don't, I don't know. Anyway. So, yeah. Base layers. I like to wear the wool... Uh, so it's good to think about dressing in layers. That's one of those things that's sort of thrown out there in every outdoor education textbook. Dress in layers. But what are those layers? Yeah. Let's break it down really quickly. Number one, you want a sanitary layer against your skin. Something that you can change because that's the part that's going to get gross and stinky. Then you've got your insulation layers that are going to keep you warm. Insulation offers... Insulation operates by trapping little air pockets and keeping them in place that your body will warm and will not be blown away. So things like wool or fleece or even, um, you know, crappy cotton sweat gear, if, you know, not, not the best, but, you know, if you know what you're doing, you can do whatever you like. So, and then lastly, on the outside, we need a wind slash water layer. So in the wintertime, I have a pair of, uh, I have an Egyptian cotton uh, anorak that I wear and that stops the air from blowing in and getting cold air into my insulation layers and I have a top and a bottom like that right so those things keep me keep me warm you know and you increase the amount of insulation depending on how cold it is the goal in the winter time is to maintain one of two different states number one if you're sitting still you want to be comfortably warm and if you're moving you want to be comfortably cool so once you start to sweat, that's when you compromise your insulation layers because you're going to get moisture and salts in your insulation layers and that's going to uh, decrease the amount of air that they can hold. So that's when you're not going to stay as warm 
by them. So, you know, we also encourage people to bring big, heavy parkas. So say we're out, say the three of us are out snowshoeing and it's bitter cold and we're walking across the lake and we're all good to go. We start to get a little chilled. So we duck up into the woods, have a little fire, warm up a pot of tea. And once we, once we get there, we pull out our big, heavy jackets. Mm -hmm. And so we're comfortably warm, comfortably warm sitting still. Then once it's time to go, break is over, or lunch is over, you know, it's always hard to get out of a nice warm sleeping bag. It's always hard to take off a nice warm parka and get back to being cold again. So I'll just, I think I'll just leave my parka on for, you know, five more minutes. Then I get up and I start walking. I'm soaked in sweat 30 steps down the trail. Yep. So the good thing to do, take off the parka, start to get cold and then exercise to warm yep. yourself back up. The bad thing to do is to be nice and warm and start exercising. Then you sweat. Then you compromise your insulation layers. That is probably the hardest thing to get anyone to understand. Mm -hmm. When you start off on it, like you see it in these parking lots when people are going on these winter hikes, they'll be putting their down jackets on. They'll be, and literally, uh, 300 feet up the trail, they're standing up to their waist in snow, shedding all those layers, and now those layers are soaking wet. Yeah. Whereas if you can just get out of your car and tough it out for a couple of hundred feet, in a base layer, mo mm -hmm. and most times, I mean, you're comfortable and sweating and this and that, but the bottom line is you have all those dry layers in your pack. So when you stop moving, you put all those dry clothes on and you're that much better off. Old Inuit proverb, stay dry, stay alive. Keep your mm -hmm. gear nice and dry, all your insulation layers dry. Yep. Keep your sleeping bag dry, all those things. And, and you learn how to do that with experience. So for uh, switching gears a bit with, with a different piece of kit, um, sleeping bags. Uh, so I carry in cold weather, I carry a down sleeping bag with me. I have, you know, my entire life. Uh, a lot of, uh, quote unquote experts will always say never bring down because if it gets wet, you, it loses the ability to insulate and which, which is true. That's a factual statement, but I would add to that. Why in God's name would I ever allow that thing to get wet? Mm -hmm. You know, keeping my sleeping bag perfectly dry and drying it out as part of the hot tent camping experience every day. That's, you know, par paramount not only for my comfort, but also for my safety. So I treat maintaining my sleeping bag and keeping it ultra dry uh, and drying it out every day as, you know, that's job, usually job number one for me. Mm -hmm. well, um, it's kind of a, that's a good example of where if, if you are competent and you know how to take care of yourself, you can get by with a down sleeping bag. I mean, I used to take a down yeah. sleeping bag whenever I did winter mountaineering, but I also had it, you know, I was above tree line. It was below zero. It wasn't getting wet. Now, if you're on a canoe trip and it's 40 degrees and, and if you have the ability to keep it dry, I think what the people steer people away from the down is you can take a synthetic sleeping bag into the woods. And even if it gets wet, an inexperienced traveler won't die of hypothermia in their sleeping bag. Yeah. So there's two schools of thought of that. Like I agree well, with Tim. If, I would say there's three schools, but let's hear you <laughs> too. But, uh, but I agree with you. If you know what you're doing, go with a down sleeping bag. But that's, that, you know, there's a lot that goes along with that. Well, if I yeah, just to jump in, I think that that's an important distinction to make is that the difference between gear. So when we when Tim runs courses and stuff like we're doing guide training, right? The, so the knowledge that they're being taught goes along with the gear that they're being exactly. asked to bring, right? Exactly. But if you're out guiding somebody that's totally new to this and it's your job to make sure that they're comfortable the whole time, maybe you don't give a person who's never been in the woods a down sleeping bag. You give them something that's I don't want to say idiot proof. Cause well, that but that's a good terminology. But yeah, but yeah. something something yeah. that's. Uh, it, there's there's very little margin for error yeah. with it, and that's I think that's an important distinction to make while we're talking about this because when we're talking about courses that Tim runs and teaches, like we're we're teaching people the knowledge that they need to know to take care of themselves. 
So we have a little more wiggle room on what they can bring because mm -hmm. they're expected to know how to take care of it. But if we're out guiding somebody and, you know, they don't have any experience, I think it's an important thing to, to know when to give that person the thing that is quote unquote idiot proof. Yeah. Third school of thought is if, if I'm out and my sleeping bag gets wet um, and I have a knife and an axe, then I can use that to take somebody else's sleeping bag that's still dry. Right. See, and here's the th I had a right. small glimmer of hope that you were going to say start a fire and dry yeah. it out, but no, you're but why would rob you? one of your students <laughs> slash clients, or actually maybe me or Ben. That would be well. You never. I mean, it could be somebody across <laughs> the river at a different campsite. You never yeah. know. But, Wait uh, in the bushes, jump out on a snowmobiler. Yeah. But it's uh, it's you're right though. It's it's that's a huge thing. You know, your sleep because because when you go to sleep at night, first of all, the temperature drops. Second of all, so does your body temperature. I mean, when you go to sleep at night, you you automatically start cooling. Down. Not with the dreams I have. Well, no. <laughs> and I've heard his dreams. Yeah, you're not a you're not a cold sleeper. But anyway, uh, so no, it, but it's good anyway. to know that it's normal in bitter cold conditions. It's so there's the really cold air outside of your body. Yep. There's the warm air that you're generating, and where they where they meet, where that warm and cold air meet, there's going to be a layer of frost, right? It's just Correct. how it happens. Yep. Yep. So depending on how cold it is and how much insulation yep. you have, that frost is going to take is going to is going to be created inside yep. your sleeping bag somewhere in the loft that's created in the insulation. Yeah. So then we need to dry that out. Exactly. So because in the winter time most of what we do all of what we do on long-term programs so you know 4 days or longer I would say is we are going to be hot tent camping so we have the ability to dry out that gear on a daily basis mm -hmm. and maintain the the insulation layers in a nice dry fashion. If we're cold if we're cold tent camping you know, every day, if you don't have the ability to dry out that sleeping bag, then every day it's going to insulate you less and less. Well, that, that, and that's the, that's the big difference right there when you say hot tent camping, because you, that's the advantage of having a, a, a hot tent versus like the type of mountaineering I used to do, whereas you can only carry so much food mm -hmm. and, and above tree line for a certain period of time. So like if I was out for four days, I was really, and I'm carrying 60 pounds. You're really pushing it as to how much farther you can stay out. If you're out in a hot tent, you can stay out for months. Right. Because every day you can you can start the tent up, dry your gear, and start over. And um, I mean, there are like vapor barrier sleeping bag liners that you could could get to keep that moisture out of your yeah space age material. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, those are an option, but. but um, the the untold uh, so there's lots of different sleeping bags. You know we. Will answer lots of questions for people who call up and say, "I've got this sleeping bag. Will it be enough?" And you know, you can buy a fancy new sleeping bag, or you could get like six old crappy sleeping yeah. bags. It doesn't matter what the name brand is or all the sort of stuff that they space age work into the design. It matters how much insulation is between your warm tropical body and the bitter cold exterior environment so that could be one you know thousand dollar fancy down sleeping bag that could be eight crappy blankets and sleeping bags from some old summer camp you know so it, it doesn't matter uh it it doesn't matter the brand it doesn't matter this what matters is how much insulation what you get what you pay what you get when you uh, buy the really expensive fancy bag is something that's going to have a ton of insulation that'll also usually roll up and pack small. Mm. So if you have eight crappy sleeping bags and that's how you stay warm, it's a totally viable option, but it's just going to be that much harder to travel with all of them. And so, one, one other subject about sleeping bags is the difference between a square bag and a mummy bag. Whereas a square bag will never be as warm as a mummy bag. 
ever. I mean, it's just because when you're in a mummy bag zipped up the way you're supposed to be in it, it just insulates you that much better. The only thing you have exposed is your face. Well, and not if you're doing it the Jack Mountain way, because yeah. I'd like to talk to you about the Jack Mountain snorkel. <laughs> oh, yeah. um, That's for monsters. It, the monster but, snorkel when you're under your covers and mm-hmm. the monsters are outside. But it also allows you to totally insulate yourself and just update your Amazon wish list in the woods. And you're breathing through a straw. Right. No, it's a snorkel. Oh, a snorkel. That's right. Yeah. Well, because the cardinal rule is a never... A straw. Pre- <laughs> Come on. Well, I like to exercise my lungs while I'm out. And that's a good therapy. You know, if you breathe through a straw... How are you still alive? It's a wonder. <laughs> but if you... Uh, one, another cardinal rule is never breathe inside your bag on a cold night. Yeah. Because what happens is... You, All that con- moisture yeah, condenses yeah. there. And, every, and I know that rule. And then... <laughs> Every morning I wake up and I'm burrowed into my bag somehow. Yeah. Like, you know. Everybody is. Unconsciously. So. But if you can, you know, it, it's just a lot. You know, I mean, we've all slept at 20 below zero. You know, and, and people say, oh, I, you know, it's a 20 below bag. It's like, go go out in your backyard and, and, and take a nap when it's 20 below. And then you, you'll consider. Yeah, that's a good point. That the, the, I'm 99% sure that these companies that are offering, say, 20 below bags, they're basing that off an equation around the loft of the bag. They don't have somebody like, it's 20 below. Like, you know, have Bob go sleep in the cold chamber at 20 below. Yeah. Because or everybody, how do I get that job? everybody who shows up at these bags, they're, they're cold. But so that, you they're, know, they're the not other, good enough. I used to have a, I had a, uh, a feathered friend's bag, which is a phenomenally expensive, really nice down sleeping bag. And, uh, and it, you know, it was great when I first got it. But after compressing that, 850 times into a bag and taking it out put it, every time you break that down stuff it and take it out you you lose its insulation and wash it for that matter yeah, yeah. and, and then just if, even you, as it just even as it ages yeah. so, exactly so you know you know you go out and spend you know 800 bucks on a sleeping bag which isn't out of the realm mm-hmm. you expect it to last a lifetime well, the truth is it's not going to it's not no. going to work at 20 below zero for 20 years trust me it won't yeah so the the danger is for those of you out there in podcast land you're going winter camping. Um, if there's any possible way that you could try sleeping in your bag in cold weather, like in your backyard, and see yep. if it's enough. Because if you show up and we're going off on the Boreal Snowshoe Expedition, and then we determine you know, by day three that your bag is not adequate, um, we don't have any way to, <laughs> to fix that problem. No, no. You're but when gonna... you're still at home, there are ways to fix it. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's, it's a great... A great uh, education to just, like I say, just go out and spend the night on the porch. Yeah. And I mean, and we should, I mean, this, just to kind of go off on another related thing, we should definitely talk about sleeping pads because that, I mean, that changed everything to me. Yeah, that was down on the list, but go ahead. Well, sleeping bag is one part of the sleep system. The pad is the other. And you're going to lose way more heat to the ground below you than you do to the air above you. It's just nature of physics, right? Conduction, you lose more heat than... The ground uh, The ground sucks the heat out of your body. It, it Literally. Just, just about every trip. Yeah. So so the MO, we, we're snowshoeing up. We're going to set up camp here. The first thing we do is take our... We walk around in an area and pack it down so it's nice and smooth and solidly packed to set the tent up on. Then we let that the snow harden for about a half hour, depending on how cold it is, and that process is called sintering. Uh, anyway... So then we've got that nice level area to set up the tent on. Uh, we set up the tent. Um, people lay out their sleeping pads, whatever. Usually by morning two, there's always somebody who's a hot sleeper, and they've literally melted their way down into the uh, into the snow. There was one guy a few years ago, a guy from England, 
uh, Andy, great guy, but he, I swear, he, after three days, you couldn't see him. He was like, his like his whole body was beneath, beneath the level of the snow. So he had melted his way down like, I don't know, two feet, <laughs> which was it's comical to me. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> anyway, so, so the sleeping pad is what stops that from happening. And, you know, multiple sleeping pads are a super useful thing to bring. Like these days when I go out, I usually, especially in the wintertime, I've got at least three pads, maybe mm-hmm. four mm-hmm. below me. So I've got a couple of uh, closed cell phone pads. Um, and then on top of that, I've got like an inflatable pad that makes everything super comfortable, comfortable to sleep on. But I know if I wake up and I've melted down into the snow at all, I need another pad yeah. or bows or something under me because... Yeah. That's totally wasted energy. As a hot sleeper who has been in a winter tent <laughs> with Tim, I do have to say, if you are someone that may sink down into the snow a little bit, don't put your sleeping bag next to Tim because waking up, looking up into Tim, growling about his cup of coffee is not an experience I'd recommend to anybody. Um, I still, well, maybe that's where those hot dreams come from. I'm just, I can't I comment. That a lot. I get that a lot. <laughs> I, I know. I can't comment on that subject. But anyway, the weird thing is, every comment you've ever gotten online about about that is just me. Just different names. Uh, so here's an interesting thing. Uh, they're kind of coming back into vogue now, but uh, those the quilts that they have that don't have zippers. So uh, during my formative years, I think I was about eight or nine years old, and I inherited my grandfather's old summer weight down sleeping bag, and it was a rectangular bag, and the zipper did not function. So I, and I used that thing. That was my main, uh, during my formative years until I was about 20, I never had a separate Mm -hmm. sleeping bag. So I became very adept at putting my feet at the bottom of the bag and then folding it under myself in Mm -hmm. order to sleep kind of like a quilt. And to this day, I think, uh, I've only zipped up a sleeping bag two times in my entire adult life. So just because I'm so used to that and you know, you get pretty good at it. So even on winter expeditions, I tend to, to favor that um, because I can get out of it really quickly. And for some reason I feel a little claustrophobic when I'm all zipped into a mummy bag. And a lot of people are, a lot of people aren't comfortable in a mummy bag because it is constricting and, um, but they work. Yeah. But it does, it is, a lot of people will get trippy about it. Yeah, do you know how hard it is to do my nighttime yoga once I'm in the bag? I've seen it. I can't do it. Yeah. <laughs> it looks a mess. It looks like an inchworm <laughs> doing yoga. <laughs> but, uh, and you know, you can't talk about that without touching on somebody out there in podcast land is saying, well, if you just build a lean-to and a bed of boughs and start a fire with a wool blanket, you'll be all set. Yeah. But, well, you, I mean. You will. You will. You there, will. There's a lot, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, uh. Work, work, and knowledge that goes into doing that, right? Work, work knowledge, um, and energy, and food, and calories, and you know, you need a massive amount of wood to yeah. pull that yeah. off. The amount of energy out. it takes to to build a shelter and a bow bed and a and a fire for one night, you can you can travel with a with a good sleeping bag and a good tent and a good and a good pad for a week, right? Using yeah. the same amount of energy. But so I would it's, say it's apples to oranges. Yeah. I, I will say though that that uh, maybe a good prerequisite for long term winter expeditioning in forested country is mm-hmm. having had that experience of sleeping oh, on doing it yeah. because then you know yeah. how much wood it takes to stay well, warm you you know those things viscerally it's not I mean, you're not taking someone else's word for it and yeah. we we actually have a program yep. the we do a uh, the frozen 24 and the frozen 48 where people go out into the forest for 
24 or 48 hours and you know clothes on their back no blanket bit of a tarp as a windbreak mm -hmm. uh, matches axe metal pot in order to stay hydrated and whatever they want to stuff in their pockets snorkel yeah could yeah. be a snorkel but uh, yeah, but yeah. having that experience and the reason it's good to have that experience is because god forbid or in the event you ever get you know in a canoe mm -hmm. mishap or you're out in the woods overnight and you have no sleeping bag no tent no anything or if some idiot burns your tent down you know they let the fire go too oh hot like starting a stove inside a tent that's never happened but <laughs> but yeah no exactly but it's it's a good skill to know but if you think you're going to survive you know do overland travel with lean-tos and you know mm -hmm. it's a, you got to you know it's something you really got to experience to get the gist of but it's a good it's a it's a absolute mandatory skill to have yeah well it's a good circle around to what we're talking about like we're talking yeah. a lot about gear but it's it's the the knowledge of how to use that gear that matters not the brand on the well, it's what you're the whole th what you're hitting on is that it um it, it takes uh, the less gear you have the more skill you need mm -hmm. the more gear you have the less skill you need yeah but but i think every, i think the to me I, you're right but i think as soon as that gear is taken out of the equation by someone burning your tent down or your sleeping bag oh, you're dead in the water. down yeah, yeah. if you don't have the yeah. knowledge to fix that problem yep. that's that's exactly it. and i yeah. think that that's yep. an important point to make um, is that if people want to invest in um, doing this correctly, they shouldn't invest lots of money in gear, which they'll do anyway, but they should invest more in learning how to do this in a way where they are totally self-reliant rather than relying on the gear that they've bought to take care Absolutely. of them. I agree, but in the you know in bitter cold weather, it's a bit of a fantasy to think that sure. you it, could do it without gear, oh, you know, yeah. without a sleeping bag. I mean, it doesn't have to be fancy gear like... The, the Jack Mountain Tim Smith uh, Winter Expedition trousers <laughs> come to mind. So Which are on sale at Walmart. Which are on sale. <laughs> so for me, <laughs> you know, in the wintertime, uh, being able to lift my knees really high as I'm walking through the woods and snowshoeing is, is just super crucial. And it's not something I want to give up. And I've never found a pair of wool pants that if once I get my knee to about 90 degrees or parallel to the ground will still allow me that freedom. So I wear like on winter trips, if it's really cold, I'll wear nice, good long johns. But then I wear cheap kind of crappy sweatpants uh, under my wind layer or just wear them because they allow me full range of motion and full flexibility. And I've never found a pair of like woven pants that will, that will allow that. So we joke around about the, the winter expedition trousers, you know. So uh, my question, though, when he was talking about them being on sale, when you get a new pair of expedition <laughs> trousers, can I, well, maybe we should talk about this after the podcast, but I'd like to buy them. Okay. We can make that happen. <laughs> They're on eBay. <laughs> They're going to be. But anyway. that's a classic example of, you know, the dogma says that the material has to be this or that, but... Everywhere I go in the wintertime on a trip, I've always got my knife. I've got matches. I have the ability to make a fire and warm up any single time. So if I get wet, I get dry right away. You know, it's not, it's not that, uh, it's not that dramatic. No, and if it does become dramatic, you have the skills to get yourself through it. Because, That's the whole point of because I took drama or like I studied. No, because you drama? watch YouTube. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, no, having the skills to rectify any situation immediately yeah. is a prerequisite for traveling safely in the winter forest mm -hmm. in bitter cold conditions. That's a safe comment. That is, yeah, that's the most succinct way of putting what I tried to say ever. Well and, done. and moisture management is, if you take away one thing from this discussion, that the colder it gets, moisture management is everything in, in winter travel. 
you know that the there are several climactic i would say zone ranges i don't know if that sounds even remotely so <laughs> what? It's, yeah whatever it's a different <laughs> world so if it's above freezing well. then it's one thing and if it gets down to around to where dry cold and wet cold crosses over somewhere in the high single digits in the fahrenheit scale or the freedom temperature scale if you will uh so that's one thing and then when you get below that like below zero is a whole nother ball game and mm -hmm. it's all about moisture management and managing frost and all mm -hmm. that but anyway i don't think we have time to to really delve into that today next week on the jack mountain podcast <laughs> yeah geez we're already at 45 minutes yeah guys. we've been uh what were, what were you uh what were you thinking were we going to talk about boots at all? We did a little bit. We did a little bit? Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, so for winter footwear, we've got a video, I think two videos that we shot, mm -hmm. that I shot a year ago, that you should definitely check out if you're going out in the woods with us or with anybody else in bitter cold weather. They're going to break down the dry cold versus wet cold, show you the specifics that you need in order to stay warm. Um, so so yeah. in all, like in all your years of teaching... Of all the things you've seen, like people make kind of the same mistake over and over. What is, is footwear probably one of the bigger? Footwear is huge. That, footwear yes, is huge. Okay. That once uh, people show up with boots with uh, where you cannot remove the liners to dry them out, and then those boots get soaking wet on day one, and then it's going to take them six days to dry. Yeah. And you go out in the cold, and that moisture is going to freeze. So you've got to be able to remove the liners to dry them out. Yep. Yeah. And and what, you know, a lot of people I've done it, do it myself. Is you wear those liners to bed in your sleeping bag, and they wake up dry. You wake right. up, your liners yeah. are dry, and your outer shell, you don't care because it's it's the outer shell of well, the boot. Correct. Whether it's rubber or... So if in, in a cold camping, cold tent camping situation, you wear the damp stuff to bed and your body heat dries out. In a hot tent situation, we hang it up high in the tent near the ridge, and it's, I don't know, 180 yeah. degrees up there, and stuff just dries. But either way, you've got dry clothes to start out with. Mm -hmm. Correct. Right. Like, that's a huge... You've got to have that. Yeah. Yep. Moisture management's everything in, in bitter cold. Yeah. Anyway. Absolutely. And one advantage to Dan Marino wool is that it does wick. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna research this after. I don't think he really invented it, but I'm not. I can't say that one. Well, way how, the other. Why would they call it that if he didn't invent it? I don't know. It doesn't make sense. Again, I'm not. I'm not. This is out of my wheelhouse. If so. just like Dan Marino in the pocket, you know, throwing touchdown long passes, moisture with Dan Marino wool will get wicked away from your skin as if. It was that football being thrown 70 yards. So it's not even close to your body by the end of it. You guys can't see this in podcast land, but I have that old vaudeville hook, and I'm trying to reach <laughs> on the stage right now. I'm, just, I'm trying, guys. I promise. Merino wool oh, wicks very well. Thank you, Dan. <laughs> yeah, let's, this podcast is dedicated to Dan Marino for inventing that awesome wool. Yeah. I'm going to send him a link. Because we got nobody else to dedicate it to anyway. Uh. Well, thank you for spending 45 minutes of your time listening to us. We really enjoyed it, uh, and we look forward to coming back again with more uh, fun, somewhat perhaps slightly instructional content for you to listen to in the future. Yeah, I was going to say, like, hopefully what we've said has helped you if you go out winter camping, but I'm looking back on our conversation, and just enjoy yourselves. Just, yeah, bring Dan Marino with you, because <laughs> he's going to have Dan Marino wool. Lots he has to. Just don't show up in an NFL game shirt when you go winter camping. Is that what you're saying? Unless it's Dan Marino. Unless it's guys, Dan Marino. Guys, guys, guys. <laughs> uh, thanks. We're out. See you.